We are in 2 Samuel 7. We continue our series on the life of David. And we're going to read the first 17 verses of the 7th chapter. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build, a, build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle, wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, that I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off your enemies from before you, all of your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and may, and may not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you, the Lord, the Lord will make a house for you when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. And if you look at your scripture sheet, you'll notice that we've got a lot of scripture we're going to be looking at today. So gird up the loins of your mind and be prepared to go into some fairly deep places with me today as we teach and hopefully learn the truth of the word of God. There's many things to note in this passage from the life of David. There is David's godly concern, which was to build a house for God's glory, for God's pleasure, not for himself. Then we see some rather presumptuous counsel that was presented by the prophet Nathan, who gave David a green light before having to come back and correct himself. Through his prophet, the Lord says to David, no, you will not build a house for me, but I will build a house for you. Verse 11, the Lord will make a house for you. God puts forth here some tremendous promises to his man David. And I suppose you could sum them up with three propositions. So we will. David promised to God a descendant, a kingdom, and a house. First, he says to David in verse 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. Now, David may already have had children at this point, but God speaks here specifically of a descendant singular who will be raised up, who will be established, in this case as king, which is nice. Uh, and, and he says, to whom this king, this 
son of David who will be king, to whom God will be as a father. So that was the first promise. Next, it says he will have a kingdom. But David already had one of those. God says, though, this kingdom under David's son will last forever. I will establish his kingdom, verse 12, then verse 16 says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. Remember that David was just, oh, the second or the third king of Israel, however you want to define that. The first one died, and his family was wiped out and dethroned. David would not know what to expect would happen in his kingdom and his dynasty after his passing, but now he's promised a dynasty, even an eternal one. Thirdly, God says of the descendant, verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. And then two in verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. So there's this promise of a house for David and a house for God built by this great descendant from David's line. Now from here, we go on to ask how and when and where are these promises fulfilled? Who is this descendant of David spoken of in our text? And the answer to that question is found both near and far in the person of Solomon, David's son, and in the great son of David, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a prophecy similar to others in the Old Testament that has what we can call a dual fulfillment. That is, there are two levels of fulfillment of this prophecy. In this case, we can say that the prophecy speaks truly of both Solomon on the one hand and Jesus on the other. And so let's see how that is so. First of all, Solomon. Solomon was certainly a descendant of David whom the Lord raised up. God established Solomon's kingdom, verse 13. He shall build a house for my name. Solomon did exactly that. He'll be, he built the original temple. Anyone here, uh, anyone here ever built a, a temple? It, it, ever built a church? Uh, yeah, Jerry Richardson's back here. Uh, Jerry's a, a former contractor, and he's built, I don't know, what, 30 churches, Jerry? How many? Around, around that? Jerry's built about 30 churches. That's pretty good. Uh, but uh, Solomon, he only built one. But Jerry, it was a very special one, okay? <laughs> uh, Solomon got a lot of credit and fame for building just one church. But when he finished the massive project, Solomon spoke thusly. First Kings 18, or first, first chapter 8, verse 17, <clears throat> I should say. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who will be born to you, he will build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word. You got that? Now the Lord, in the construction of that temple that Solomon oversaw, now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. For I have risen in place of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. So, to me, then, this seems undeniable. Solomon refers back to the covenant of David, and he says, So the Lord has now fulfilled his word. Obviously, this word in our text in 2 Samuel 7 has reference to David's son, Solomon. And so, verse 14 says, I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Did that happen to Solomon? 
one can certainly see that it did. God spoke to and through Solomon as a father would speak to his son. And you look at 1 Kings 11, and you see there the chastening of Solomon when he goes astray. And you know the story, I think. Solomon had a harem of foreign and domestic wives and concubines. And there in 1 Kings 11:4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Read on. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away uh, from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this, have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. And so you see that God disciplined Solomon severely, but he did not completely abandon Solomon as he had Saul. 2 Samuel 7, 15, my loving kindness will not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. All right then, this covenant with David is clearly fulfilled through Solomon, his immediate son. Clearly also, I believe it is not fully fulfilled through Solomon. This is apparent because of the threefold presence of one word in the promises. You know what that word is? Forever. <laughs> forever. We find it at the end of verse 13, twice in verse 16. It says that I will establish his kingdom forever. And forever is a long, long time. And Solomon just did not, he just did not make it. Okay? Uh, who has a forever kingdom? Is it not the one of whom Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 9, a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Priests. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and, say it with me, forevermore. <laughs> it is our Lord Jesus who reigns eternally. It is Jesus who fulfills this promise of David and the promise of the prophets. He alone is the eternal king. How then does he fulfill the vision provided through Nathan? Well, first of all, he is a descendant of David. You know that. You wonder why such a big deal is made over this point in the New Testament. And 2 Samuel chapter 7 is precisely why. In Luke, in the pronouncement to Mary, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city, city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. What's it say? Prepositional phrase. Of the descendants of David. Big deal. Then a few verses later, speaking of the virgin's son, he will be great be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him, what will he give him? The throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever. His kingdom will have no end. So from the start, much ado was made about Jesus and his relationship with David. He walked the earth, when, as he walked the earth and he encountered demons, what would the demons cry out? What are you doing here, son of David? But they had some interesting theology, those demons. They knew their Old Testament. The book of Acts is full of such talk. The apostles repeatedly arguing in the book of Acts that Jesus is the Davidic king promised of old, the one we normally think of as the Messiah. 
The epistles make the same point. When Paul began his great Romans epistle, he wrote that his gospel was about God's Son. Verse 3 of Romans, your scripture sheet says Acts, it should be Romans, speaks of the Son, God's Son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. And then at the end of the New Testament in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So all of this emphasis is traced back to 2 Samuel 7, where the first word was spoken of the son of David. Verse 13 of our main text, he shall build a house for my name. The next thing it says. So Solomon, we know, did this. But Jesus? Did Jesus build a house for God's name? Absolutely. Absolutely. It also says in verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me uh, forever. And Jesus did build a never-ending house. Where is it? What is it? (laughs) It is you and it is me. It is the church. How about that? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Read it with me. We are the temple of the living God. Hebrews 3, verse 6. Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Whose house? Pronoun, plural. We are. That's who's, and then uh, 1 Peter 2, 5. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. <laughs> Does Jesus have a literal material house forever? Is that what we're talking about here? No. It is a spiritual house, but it is nevertheless very real. In fact, it is more real, and it fulfills the word given to David. Ephesians 2, verse 19, you are fellow citizens with the saints of God's household, having been built, in the language of construction again, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy, what? Temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So it's a spiritual house, but is it real? Very real. And how long does it last? Forever, praise God. The Son of God builds for God a house, and God establishes for the Son of David a house, thus fulfilling the word of God to David through Nathan. And this is where you say, praise the Lord. Thank you. <laughs> 2 Samuel seven fourteen is a bit more difficult, though, to understand how it relates to Jesus, because there it says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Clearly, this speaks to the person of Jesus as God's son. But it goes on, and it bothers us when it says this. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. All right, can this refer to Christ? (laughs) Or is this only in reference to Solomon? Well, I, I don't mind if one chooses to limit this portion to Solomon. That's better than saying Jesus committed sin, which the New Testament is very explicit in saying he did not. But there is a way to see this as happening to Christ also. Because he was beaten with the rods of men. He was whipped with the strokes of men. He was punished severely, more than Solomon for sure. And when was Jesus so punished? Well, it was when he took on himself the sins of his sheep. He was punished because of sin, only it was your sin, 
<laughs> my sin, not his, at least until he became sin for us, and as sin, he was punished. You see then how verse 14 could be understood to speak of our Lord as well. And then verse 15 too, verse 15, my loving kindness shall not depart from him. We know that to be true. After he died as a sin offering, three days later, the Father raised him from the dead. So the fact that the promise of an eternal kingdom is fulfilled by Christ, that I think should be obvious for us. But how and when it is fulfilled, well, that's a matter of some disagreement, okay? It's a matter of some disagreement. You ever have disagreements with people? <laughs> have you found you have more disagreements now than you ever used to have with people, <laughs> maybe family members, about various things? You know, I, I preferred the old days when our disagreements had more to do with this text versus that text and all of that. I, I'm more, more comfortable in that realm of dis dispute. And this one falls in that realm. So let's look at some scripture that uh, sometimes Christians have some disagreements over. God has promised an eternal kingdom for David. What kind of kingdom? Eternal kingdom. Not a thousand-year kingdom. An eternal kingdom. The promised reign of David's son is forever. And when does it begin? When is this promise fulfilled? Has it happened already, or is it still to come? With full conviction, I can say, that the kingdom of God is now. Rhymes with cow. Now. The text has been and is being fulfilled. Hallelujah. In the original Christian sermon, Acts 2, Peter says this about David. Because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ is here related back to the Davidic covenant. Verse 34, Peter goes on, it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the punchline of his sermon. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, does Peter say here that the king from the house of David has come? and will one day return to be Lord? Is that what he says? No. He says God has made, past tense, past tense. We need to do some grammar. I was doing grammar with my grandkids this week, and I, I like kids to understand grammar and prepositional phrases and subjects and objects and past tense and present tense and all of that. So I had to learn it. They should have to learn it. <laughs> so has made, that's what we call past tense, Right? God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus. So Jesus has fulfilled the promise because he reigns right now. He said, Matthew 28, all authority has been, there it is again, past tense, has been given to me. Paul speaks this way in Acts 13, verse 32. He says, we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled, past, he's always past tense, has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. And Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus is the act that fulfilled the promises made to David. We aren't waiting for Messiah to take the rule. 
The king has sat upon his throne, and understand this, Christ sits now on David's throne. That throne, it's over Jews, it's over Gentiles alike, but it's still what the Old Testament called David's kingdom. In the book of Acts, we read about an important church council in the city of Jerusalem, and at that church council, James stood up and delivered a critical and decisive speech, and in it he said this, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the word of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. They were debating what to do with these Gentile converts. And James says, this is what was prophesied that the king will take his throne and then the Gentiles will come into the kingdom. And this is so helpful and clear. James says that the prophecy about the Gentiles seeking the Lord when the house of David is restored, all that stuff is happening when? Now, not 2022, but it's 2022. Wow, we made it. Not 2022, but way back in the first century. He's saying that prophecy is fulfilled now. The Davidic covenant fulfilled in the apostolic age via the church. It is spiritual and it is universal, but it has come. The restoration of David's kingdom and David's house, it's not simply future. It has happened at the ascension of Jesus. It's happening now in the building of the church. It is now and not yet. Theologians like to speak that way. Say it with me. Now and not yet. It's both those things. There is a fullness of the kingdom that is yet to come. That's for sure. But right now, Jesus is king. The witness of Scripture to this is truly overwhelming. Paul says this about Christ, that the Father, Ephesians 1, the Father seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, power, authority, and dominion, and every name that is named. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. It's a simple theological question. Is Jesus the king of Israel now? Is Jesus the king of Israel now? Yes, yes, yes. Is he on the throne of David now? Of course he is. In a prayer in Hebrews, we read this about Christ. Hebrews 2 and verse 8. You have put all things in subjection under his, Christ's feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. And then you get this line thrown in, which is helpful. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Okay. That's important to add. We don't see everything subject to Christ. It has been put under him. We don't see it because his now, right now his subjects are still able to rebel. At the Lord's coming, we will see all subject to Christ, for then every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and they will say, Jesus is Lord. But do see this. The promised kingdom and the promised king have come and are now. You and I, we're a part of that. We're part of that. One of my favorite verses, Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, it's a good one for your refrigerator, by the way. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Is there righteousness now? Is there peace now? Is there joy in the Holy Spirit now? The answer to that is yes. These things exist because the kingdom of Christ exists. Colossians 1 says, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 
He has, again, you notice past tense all this. He has transferred us. We are there now, and the kingdom of the Lord into which we have found entrance, it will remain forever. The promised kingdom, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is now. We are in it. Okay, I'm done saying now. But what does this mean for us? Well, it means we recognize, we honor, and we obey Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? It means that we live our lives and we execute our mission for Christ knowing that our Savior, our best friend, our good shepherd is ruling the universe. We tremble not before kings. We tremble not before earthly tyrants. We need not worry about the enemies of the cross. Their doom is sure, for our Jesus sits in the place of power. He is the true supreme court and the only sovereign. Praise God. Jesus is Lord now. Oh, I said it again. Now. And praise God that the fullness of that kingdom, it's still yet to come. There's more to look forward to. So many songs have been written to celebrate this truth. Maybe Handel did it best when he paraphrased Revelation and said, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. We enjoy the current state even as we anticipate. We hail you, Lord Jesus, as king, and we together say, come, Lord Jesus. So, hey, Brooke, it's time to sing. Brooke, over there, not in your usual spot. It's time to sing uh, of our king. Musicians coming up, and as you do, let's uh, finish our meditations in prayer. Lord, what good news this is. That though the wrong seems off so strong, our Savior who loves us and died on our behalf is the ruler yet. <laughs> Lord, convince our hearts of that. When, uh, when we get hit by the virus, convince our hearts of that when the Steelers lose. Not saying that that's going to happen, but if it does, Lord, convince our hearts of that when this world disappoints and we wonder, is there all chaos about us? Is everything random? That you are on your throne. Convince our heart of that as, as we seek to, to take Jesus to, to neighbors and friends. That we do so in the context of a risen and reigning Christ. Convince our hearts of that, O oh God, as we make moral choices. And the enemy tempts us to seek our own way. Convince our hearts that as subjects of the great and perfect King... We must, and we'll be glad that we seek your way. So God, we pray that you give us eyes to see your kingdom, and then to step into it and live in it with joy and anticipation that one day Christ will come, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and we will see, not just know that everyone is subject to him, but see everyone subject to him. May we be so on this 16th day of January, 2022. Amen.